and welcome to Clinton's YYC Sustainable Matters, a show where we have real conversations with the people who are living at the intersection of sustainability and business. With that, I'd like to welcome my guest today to the show, Apostel Radev. How are you, sir? I'm good, Tyler. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure. I love, as everyone knows, this is the highlight of my day to get to talk to interesting people doing super, super cool things. So let's start off. Let's jump in the quick pitch elevator. You are CEO at SolarSteam. Uh, SolarSteam, I'm sorry. There's no R in there. SolarSteam. What is the SolarSteam? What do you guys do? What problems do you solve in the world? And uh, let's chat about it from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so what we do is that we generate renewable heat. And I really want to emphasize on the importance of uh, the fact that we're looking at uh, generating heat instead of electricity. Uh, we all enjoy electricity every day. This podcast is available uh, as a result of uh, all the electricity that we have in our lives. But nice. uh, depending on whose statistics you're looking at, heat is up to 50% of the final energy consumption. So this is something that was very important for us. We, we started off by taking a very close look into the problem fit solution, like what are the problems that we need to address. And this is where we identified it, is that when we talk about um, uh, transitional energy and renewable energy, uh, that uh, there is this big elephant in the room that nobody seems to be addressing, which is the importance of renewable heat generation. So this is what we do. And the way we do it is by using uh, curved mirrors, <clears throat> excuse me, what we call concentrated uh, uh, mirrors or, or, or troughs that focus the sunlight onto a, onto a focal point where we have a pipe. Uh, that we call that pipe a solar receiver, and that solar receiver can uh, use different types of fluids coming in from the inlet that can be turned into hot water and steam exiting from the outlet. Very interesting. So this is this is an overly simplified version of me as a kid with a magnifying glass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yes, if we ever need a little bit of an extra boost of heat for whatever reason, maybe I'll call you, I'll call you up so that you can bring your magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to dig it out, uh, Apostle. I have not used it for years. It's an interesting, I, re- I really, uh, sorry, I'm going to throw a personal story in. I bought a house about eight, nine years ago, and it has um, solar collectors on the roof that that heat it, um, a glycol, uh, a biodegradable glycol water mixture and push it into a big storage tank in my basement that then, then the heat, then the house uses to contribute its heat. And that's, this was built probably in 08, which I think, uh, but now I've seen, you know, even my builder was like, oh, you might want to switch to uh, photovoltaic and you might want to move mm-hmm. away from it, but the system works very well. I just don't see a lot of instances of it. So I have a little bit of relatability here, just even in, mm-hmm. in my own home. And it's been highly economical for, uh, as a way to heat my house. My, mm-hmm. I, I have a bigger house and my, and my basically utility costs cut in half from a more traditional mm-hmm. forced air furnace mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and perhaps we can even use you as a case study to tell that exact story, uh, because okay. where we are trying to connect with some, of, uh, with some of our potential clients and adopters, it's really explaining uh, of how we can save them money. Uh, okay. and, and in particular, that a lot of the, the bills, uh, uh, even for heating, uh, for some of what we call institutional buildings, like large universities, municipal buildings, come from, from their heating bill, not so much the bill for supplying the electricity for other purposes. So this is this is where uh, essentially you have solar thermal technology. We use a slightly different uh, uh, approach to how we generate the heat, but it's under the same category of solar thermal technology. And what solar thermal gives you gives you a direct heat generation, which is the final product that you need at a very high efficiency, anywhere between fifty all the way up to eighty five and ninety percent when the sun is shining. Uh, whereas with some of the other types of solar technology, they have a particular limit at about twenty two percent, even on the sunniest day of the year of how much energy they can get you. Hmm. 
And in this case, my battery, if you will, is a large fluid tank that heats up and is well insulated and then can, so that, that's how I'm saving the heat for nighttime or, but I also live in Alberta where it is notoriously very sunny, sunny part of the world. That's right. That's right. Yes. We, uh, we, we are looking at anywhere between 240 and 270 unobstructed uh, clear skies. And uh, I frequently tell the joke that it's amazing when there is no snow outside and it's a, uh, and it's a winter day and it looks nice and sunny. You almost can't quite tell whether it's minus 30 <laughs> or plus 30, but then you see the first couple of people walking by and then you have a pretty good idea what uh, the temperature. Might be like. I do love Alberta where you can get into your car on a minus 30 day and it's sunny and it's warm inside the car. If it's sitting in a parking lot outside, that, that, Super. That, that's yeah. such a great example. Uh, curious. We talk about sustainability or even get it. We'll talk about a little bit the world of VSG and the reporting and what we're, what we're focusing on and what we're chasing. What I'm really hearing you say, and I'm putting my own words to this, is that sometimes we're adding a middleman where there doesn't need to be one. The middleman being a generation of electricity. If our 50% of our is going to be heat and the outcome. Just curious, is that a bit of a blind spot? Is that just where the technology has landed? It, 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 mm-hmm. it feels like we're adding a step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and yeah, blind spot might be one phrase to use. I think we just need to, uh, as, a, as a community and as all the, the individual players, we need to have that awareness of okay, all the important yeah. steps. Like even from the from from the generators to the to the consumers to all the intermediates that are required to actually make that happen. Because there is a lot of talk about uh, grid stability, or, mm-hmm. or more importantly, grid instability. I was recently in uh, <laughs> yes. in Austin for South by with a delegation led by Alberta Innovates, which was a wonderful experience, and we oh, invited cool. around talks cool. uh, table with Mackenzie. Mackenzie actually told us that it's a it's a miracle that they even have the lights on that particular day because of all the <laughs> all the issues that they have been suffering. So so the reason I'm bringing that up is uh, is because when we were talking about the grid, we we're putting a normal stall on the grid with all that electric new electricity that we we're putting online, and with a lot of the renewable sources of electricity, they typically come online at the exact same time of the day, whether it is winter or whether it is solar. So there is that huge peak of electricity that is put on the grid. And the grid sometimes have a bit of a hard time taking on taking on that load. Uh, and and then in parallel with that, there is a talk about electrification of absolutely everything that we do. I have probably I'm looking at probably five or six batteries just sitting on my desk right now. And then we are looking at all the EVs, and I'm very interested in having an EV one day. But once again, that is putting additional toll on the grid. So the way we can help with grid stability is by removing the electricity that can be or the energy that can be uh, generated uh, using different forms. Uh, of uh, generation such as heat generation so instead of taking uh, electricity and turning it into a heat uh, only to only to provide it to the client that needs it in the final final uh, form of heat we can generate that heat directly and this way we can open up anywhere between 20 30 up to 40 percent of additional capacity on the grid so that we can put on all that uh, all that new energy that's required for our evs and all the other uh uh the equipment that we'll be running on the, all, I think we can safely just say all all of the things. I really appreciate yeah. that concept because what I really now start to think about or you're pushing me to think about is localization. I need to localize my heat generation because we can't transport heat. We do it in the form of electricity. If we're just going to use that as heat mm-hmm. is the ultimate output and the currency that gets me, you know, energy that can't be made or destroyed. Well, that's a bigger conversation, but it can be moved around in different forms. Let that, I way oversimplified that, but we'll leave it. We're not, we're not going to get into that conversation today. I think that might go way up outside my pay grade. Um, but aside from putting a modular nuclear reactor by my house, the sun is really the next most feasible uh, nuclear reactor that's mm-hmm. running every day all the time, X amount of miles away, so it doesn't melt my house. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Tyler, we like speaking about stackable solutions. 
there we have a big undertaking ahead of us with lowering greenhouse gases and working on that transition. So I don't, I don't, I'm not here to tell you that solar steam is the solution for for absolutely everything. Yeah. It's all about stackable solutions and complementary solutions. So mm-hmm. we have the ability to to integrate with uh, electrified heat. We have the ability to integrate with biomass, with hydrogen, uh, with uh, with various types of renewable heat generation, such as geothermal. Yeah. So it's it's all about identifying what what is the proper mix of energy solutions in the, the in the various locations. There are some locations where I might be very eager to get into, but maybe our solution is not the best fit. And we'll be more than happy to provide suggestions on what might be some of mm-hmm. the other solutions that are a better fit. And when it comes to um, uh, addressing uh, intermittency, uh, so we are we are integrating with thermal energy storage. This is something that we are doing right now. And thermal energy storage, it's a much uh, simpler and lower cost solution in comparison to the conventional battery storage, lithium iron okay. storage, and, and yep. the other types of electrical storage. And uh, and the other piece here is that, yes, we frequently get asked, how do you connect to the grid? We have to explain that we don't connect to the power grid because we are heat uh, heat yep. solution, not electrical solution. However, if there is a district heating system in place, which is the case with a lot of the uh, European cities and some of the North American cities, including Calgary, in downtown Calgary, we do have a district heating system. Then you have the ability to develop a facility that's a little uh, outside of the urban area. And then as long as you can integrate into that already existing district heating system, and that district heating system can supply heat to multifamily homes, in some cases, residential buildings such as Drake Landing, uh, yeah. or there is a lot of industrial parks that service multiple different facilities that do have a district heating system in place. Interesting. Talk to me a little bit about storage. What, what does that what does that look like? Because I think we all understand kind of the the the, the battery movement and better mm-hmm. batteries and longer lasting. Yeah. How does that come? How does that start to? I like I have my big water tank, but that's the only thing I yeah. can really relate to as far as mm-hmm. storage ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so maybe let's think about that. So in your case, you have a glycol system, if I heard you correct, and you have yes. your storage tank. So you're heating uh, you're heating the fluid and you're storing the excess in in your in your battery. And correct. someone gave me a very interesting analogy is that. Uh, Think, think of it as uh, uh, crops. So that during the summer, we harvest all these crops, which is the sun, and we don't have the ability to eat all the crops in one go. But what we do with the excess, we can it. So that's exactly what we do as well. We can that excess heat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and in your case, you're storing it in a, storing it in a glycol tank. There is various different types of uh, test thermal energy storage solutions. Uh, the thermal energy storage solution that we like is called phase change material. And we work okay. with a wonderful partner that is, uh, that is helping us with that technology. So it's essentially it's a it's a starch based uh, liquid that is in uh, solid form when it is not charged and it turns into liquid form when it is charged and it's completely non toxic. Very interesting. And so I want to clarify: the heat is transferred from the top of the house to the to the mechanical room with a glycol mixture, but then through heat exchangers, the actual heat storage itself is pure uh, water. So just Perfect. to cl- clarify, it's yeah, water. Yeah. the bulk of it is water. The transportation mechanism is a water glycol mixture just because it gets exposed to the elements. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and with our system, we actually have the ability to work with various types of uh, what is called heat transfer fluid, HDFs. Okay. Yeah. So we have already demonstrated direct steam generation. So we can work with a facility that already has a boiler system that it's undergoing their own water mm-hmm. treatment. And we can take the exact same water and run it through our what we call a boiler, which is the solar receiver, essentially. Yes. Uh, and and we can generate hot water and steam directly. We can also use a glycomics. We can use a molten salt. We can use thermal oil. So we can integrate with whatever is the type of already existing system. So this would be the the brownfield integration. 
Yeah, it's already existing facility. If we're talking about the Greenfield integration, which is a new facility, then we can design it based on the specs that make the most sense for that particular client. Mm. Brownfield versus Greenfield. Does this, at, at this current time, does this, you know, I'm talking about a single residential uh, establishment mm-hmm. and my roof is full of solar array that are mm-hmm. um, the, the tubes that actually collect the heat and they punch into a manifold. Uh, I don't know. Like, is that an economical solution? Like what I'm hearing you talk about is a little mm-hmm. bit larger scale, industrial, uh, industry, Correct. Um, universities, Correct. B- bigger footprint uh, establishments. Mm-hmm. Correct. So there is um, a, a set cost that typically comes with what we call an instrumentation room or instrumentation pieces that wouldn't okay. justify a small scale system. That cost becomes very negligible once you go at a larger scale uh, okay. because it's prorated in the number of units. And our system is highly modular. So even at, uh, at we we can still start at a smaller scale, even with a larger client at phase one deployment, so that we okay. can enable them to demonstrate and there is the system. And and the beauty of the modularity approach is that we can offer clients a step change approach solution. So we have a lot of targets in Canada and globally on anywhere between twenty to thirty percent of GHG mm-hmm. offset by twenty thirty and net zero by twenty fifty. So what we can do is that we can come in. And we can start with a smaller scale installation uh, that starts off with a 5% offset, then increase it to 10 or 15 and take it all the way up to 30 by 2030. This way, we can offer the clients the ability to actually maintain their already existing assets, which are likely a paid off capex, uh, while integrating a new solution that will not become a stranded asset. And over time, they can continue to add the additional capacity of our system, thermal storage, and other stackable solutions so that we can get them to that uh, uh, net zero by 2050 mark. So when you're looking and you're assessing an opportunity or you're assessing a, doing a discovery session, I'm assuming I'm a large industrial facility with significant amount of equipment that's all running on mm-hmm. electric. That's maybe a different conversation than I'm a university where I'm focusing on heat as a huge part of my, my need or my output, mm-hmm. as well as the sure I need power. So I'm assuming that the conversation will make a lot of sense in some cases, maybe less on others directly based on what they're using their electricity for. If you're using it for heat, well, we're, we're an excellent, you're an excellent candidate. Mm-hmm. If you're using it to run equipment or to, for, for a different mm-hmm. output, uh, that's, I'm a, so am I, am I, am I correctly understanding that that would maybe shift the value of the use case? Yes, yes, exactly. And I, I like, like the fact that you're using the phrasing discovery. So we like discovery calls, not sales calls, just to yes. learn more. <laughs> Absolutely. We have, we have our own assumptions of how a particular a facility it's operating, but we don't, the, the operators know that better than we do. So we're, we can be very soft with stating our assumptions and asking them for clarification and corrections, whether that's correct. If the final energy consumption uh, is in the form of, of electricity for non-heat applications, then we, we can help the client with maybe addressing some of their heating applications with a small-scale system. But if it doesn't make techno-economic sense, then you'll be more than happy to suggest other solutions and put them in touch with the providers that might be able to to help them with that. Based on their, I I love the stackable solutions concept that you put out there that there is no one answer. Every situation is unique and there's multiple solutions that will contribute to a better net reduction down the road. It's not the one size fits all, which the media loves to grab onto, right? (laughs) It, It is, yeah. And we've spent a lot of time even thinking and understanding what is the proper language to use. Stackable solutions, complementary solutions. Uh, we are highly focused on uh, on the deployment and the, and the development, the commercialization of solar steam technology. But we've had that uh, uh, we've been put in that amazing position to have been able to learn about all these other solutions that can solutions that can complement our system and also address an area that is currently inaccessible to us, so that we have the ability to 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 refer uh, other mm. types of technology and other founders and other startups to companies that we're talking to. 
Do you find in your experience, based on where we are in the journey, is the um, alternative energy, I, I'm not even using the right words, uh, is it is it complementary? Is it collaborative? Or is it, no, the wind people believe in wind, the solar people believe in solar. I'm being really modular in this, <laughs> my question. But how, how collaborative is it behind the scenes? Uh, I, I, I dare say it's very collaborative. Okay. Even within the space that we are in, for example, solar thermal energy, we know that this is a joint effort that we all need to work collectively. All the companies in that space need to work collectively. And the pie is too big, Tyler. Lately, even when I get that question from investors, when they ask me about competition, I tell them I'm happy to speak about competition, which is do nothing. It's one of the competitors. The other one is other forms of that can provide renewable heat. And then I can yeah. speak about direct competitors, similar do, companies. Do nothing the being the biggest, the biggest uh, yes, competitor. That's yes, right. <laughs> but, but, but ultimately, the pie is too big. There is so much to take that okay. it doesn't make sense to almost compete for the same market. If I see that the company has a very tight grip on a particular market and they have perfected their solution for that market, I don't think I'll be going after that market. Yeah, I'll be trying enough. to convince uh, their clients uh, otherwise. Because the problem, so I, the problem and the opportunity are so are so monstrous. <laughs> that's right. So this is where I think it's it's actually beneficial for us to to collaborate and to talk to each other. I've had the pleasure of being introduced to to big name CEOs of some of the multi-million and multi-billion dollar companies. And the essence of the discussion has always been is let's see what we can do to help each other out. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That was what I was hoping your answer would be, but I was, I'm always, I'm always, cur I'm always curious. <laughs> um, Western Canada versus global. Uh, always curious where we sit and where we are in our journey. And sometimes mm -hmm. you don't, you can't see the label when you're in it. You know, it's, it's hard. Mm -hmm. so when you look around the world, wh wh where are your sources of inspiration or can you, you know, mm -hmm. jurisdictions where you see, just much more forward thinking, or maybe you see these applications just being more w widely implemented? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. So um, I'm a very proud uh, new Canadian, and I love that term. I've been mm -hmm. in Calgary and Alberta for the last 12 years. And uh, even though I do tell people, even though it was not love at first sight, it did take me a little <laughs> while to get used to it. I moved here in September, and I was faced with minus 40. That is a bad uh, time a to move. Weeks. That's a bad time to yes. move to Alberta. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't have a vehicle at first, so it took me a couple of months to save up so that I can purchase my first vehicle. Um, so, so I, I what I really appreciated was the resilience of the people, mm, and I was okay. greeted with amazing hospitality. Everybody was willing to help, was uh, looking to 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 give me a helping hand, and this is what really inspired me. And uh, and what's interesting is what's funny is that. Uh, halfway through my first winter i was almost in the mindset that this is it winter is not going away <laughs> so i need to i need to condition myself to be in that mindset and i think that's really helped that things are not easy and 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 and, and i don't believe in uh, easy success i think easy success is very bad because it can uh, really fool you it's and fleeting you. it is fleeting yes, Boston. it's fleeting <laughs> yeah every once in a while i do want things to come easier than <laughs> than they do and i'm reminded that that never happens <laughs> so I think this is something that uh, that really helped me with understanding the mindset and the entrepreneurship that we have locally and uh, and really finding solutions. Like not necessarily like it's great to look in the past and learn, but let's not complain. Let's just learn and move on. So so this is something that makes me a very proud uh, Canadian, and I and I have truly enjoyed living uh, living in in this country and in Alberta and the city of Calgary. Uh, but I think that we still have uh, to learn. From okay. from uh, from from what's happening elsewhere, I had a chance to. I grew up in, in in Europe, and I had a wonderful time growing up in Europe and in Bulgaria. I've had a chance to spend a couple of years in the U.S. and uh, I I did uh, did visit. Uh, uh, I was part of a accelerator program in Chicago called Generator. We were part of their inaugural sustainability cohort last year. 
Oh, so okay, I had awesome. a chance to travel to Chicago a couple of times. And we're in Austin just, it feels like a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it was uh, it was last month with Board Innovates. So I needed a little bit of that reminder of even some of the the cultural business uh, the business cultural differences between Canada and the US. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. It's just that we are different, okay. and 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 there is a certain uh, certain place for where these differences uh, uh, can be used to our advantage. And when they're not to our advantage, then we have the ability to pick and choose. Actually, how okay. Like so to I, I'm going to have to ask: What are some of the differences that showed up for you, or the ones that kind of rise to the top of like, oh, that's very that's not what <laughs> yeah. I'm used to. So um, I actually did spend a couple of years in the U.S. before moving to Canada, and I really appreciated what Canada had to offer after spending a couple of years in the U.S. It was the politeness, <laughs> how we take pride in being, uh, in being Canadians. We do. Uh, after 12 years uh, of really being uh, submerged in that politeness and the beauty of being a Canadian, maybe I needed a little bit of a reminder of what it means to actually do business elsewhere. So what I mean by this, Tyler, is that something that um, took a very strong uh, on us uh, is that when we started engaging in some of the investment discussions and the customer discovery discussions, we were faced with a little too much politeness where people wouldn't tell us yes or no. And we were stuck in that limbo of a maybe for way too long. So we had to develop that skill set, not necessarily to provoke a no or to provoke an answer, but we had to call the question, does that feel like this is going in a particular direction? Because if it is not, we we are growing our team. We have six full-time employees right now, but we are still a small team. So we need to be very respectful of everyone's time, time and bandwidth, including the big corporate's bandwidth. So, so this was maybe the difference that we felt uh, in the U.S. in comparison to Canada, that people are very quick, fairly quick to tell you whether this is going in the right direction or not, regardless whether you agree with them or not. Uh, which I appreciate because you, yeah. you can do something. You can do something yeah. with that information, right? Yes. You can't do much with it, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. I appreciate the nuance on just the business and like, tell me yes, tell me no. And then now we know how to proceed the sustainability conversation or even the, the importance being put placed on, on just ESG and reporting structure differences that you're seeing in different areas of motivations, you know, companies that are doing this maybe a little bit on their own fruition versus doing it due to regulatory pressure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know that that is a little bit of a different story North and South of the border. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. Good question. And I'm not sure if I have a specific answer here. Uh, it is, first of all, if we're just to make a comparison between US and Canada, we were talking of two of about two very large countries mm-hmm. that, yeah, that are very regionally different as well. We are, we can, we tend to be quite similar, but we can also be quite different within Canada. Same applies uh, to the US. Um, I think it's a matter to focus on the people that actually, where you're actually, we are aligned with the vision. Like there okay. is that analogy of you can be in a room of a hundred people, you talk to them, 95% of the people tell you, forget about it, this is never going to work. But there is the five people that are really championing what you're doing. Why do we focus our attention on the 95% to, to, to prove them otherwise? That's a very philosophical question. And in marketing, branding, communication, when you yeah. have limited resources, it for, focuses you to be very good with your aim. <laughs> that's right. So yeah, You only yeah, have two bullets. Right. You don't just shoot recklessly. <laughs> that's right. You clarify the aim, the frequency, whatever is the fancy term. Yes, exactly. Days. You reach your frequency. Yeah. Understanding who your ideal customer profile is and what matters to them mm-hmm. and how that relates to you. So I appreciate, and I'm assuming with heat being your main currency, which I understand your first winter in Calgary, 
Calgary is really good inspiration for providing heat to the world <laughs> yes. as far as your core purpose. I'm assuming also geographically, that's a very different conversation in Southern Texas uh, or in Austin for that matter, where it may be a cold day for them is, is zero our temperature or, or minus that's two. Right. And where my, yeah. minus day here is you die if you stay outside too long. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that also impacts your conversation around the lane you chose to be in with your solution. That's right. So you made an interesting analogy at being of the core of how it's amazing could be minus 30. You step into your vehicle and it's nice and warm. <laughs> so did, uh, we do something very similar to that. So as part of our system, we have an enclosure component that helps shelter the system from the harsh elements, oh, such okay. as uh, snow, hail, and wind loading. What it allows us to do is to really access markets that were previously inaccessible for that type of technology. Ah, okay. Uh, because this way we can deploy the system in, in, in Alberta, for example, and we don't have to heavily re, uh, reinforce the system from the ground up, which is typically where a lot of the cost goes. So that uh, allows us to use very lightweight and expensive components on the inside, which enables the modularity and ease of deployment. Mm. But uh, even on the other comment uh, that, uh, that you made about uh, Texas and, for example, Austin, so we also, something that is part of our job is to, to, to properly explain uh, what does heat mean? Like, why is heat important? Because when we think of heat, we think of your coat and you need to, to be warm, uh, just to use a simple analogy. Heat is uh, used in a lot of industrial processes. I like to even uh, to speak in terms of like a lot of the clothes that we wear, a lot of the buildings that we live in are built with uh, materials that require heat as part of their manufacturing. So that's from the petrochemical facilities, including the oil and gas industry, food and beverages uh, require heat as part of the manufacturing process. But there is also another area that requires heat, and that might surprise you. It's cooling. There, is, uh, there are various types of cooling technology that require an electricity, but there is other types of cooling technology that require on a chemical process, on a, on a chemical exchange that needs uh, what they call it the voodoo technology, that needs uh, heat, <laughs> that needs thermal energy. So once again, with the normal stall that we're putting on the grid with the electrification, we're starting to take a closer look into some of these types of cooling technologies that actually require heating as part of the exchange process. Interesting. So getting into deep, deeper manufacturing processes as, and, and unique instances that aren't just oversimplification of heating and cooling from a, from a, a building perspective. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yep. Interesting. From your perspective, obviously the electrification of everything, uh, electricity will save us, the, the, the media message. And again, I'm mm-hmm. being a bit facetious with that. Um, does that create any issues for you when you're out there having this conversation about, oh yeah, no, no, we need to talk about electricity. You're like, well, hey, let me present to you that this is mm-hmm. our thesis around that. Yeah. But the government, the policies, there's the media is, certainly seems to be driving a very clear, mm-hmm. I would say oversimplified uh, and indulgent mm-hmm. narrative. Is that make it a little bit of a challenge when you get into the room or is it something because we're so aware of our need for heat, mm-hmm. is the consumer able to understand it relatively quickly? Mm-hmm. So um, to some extent, uh, uh, so once again, I'm not against electricity. We need it. We, there, there are certain areas that were definitely better of being electrified. Uh, what's interesting for us is that uh, that ideal customer profile, like you brought that up, because we want to be able to connect with uh, with the final consumer. Like, this is something important for us, and we're working on the narrative. Uh, but where, we, uh, where we, um, we have the greatest potential, actually, for deploying our system is to, when we talk to the people that truly understand the process. And sometimes that could be a little uh, difficult, especially when we present, because uh, the coaching that we have received in the entrepreneurial space is that we need to have the ability to connect with anyone and everyone that we talk to. 
And if it is not understood, then that's not their fault. It's our fault. And I truly believe <laughs> yeah, in no, that. I, I, that I do agree with ability, that part. I do agree yes, with that part. That we have the inability to explain it. I couldn't agree more with this. But to some extent, we need to talk to the people that understand that you can't electrify everything. So okay. even if that's the message out there, there is a lot of uh, awareness these days is that, yes, we need to elect- electrify as many of the areas as possible. But there are certain areas that would be very difficult to electrify. And if they do, this would be an enormous capital investment. And there will be an, an, a whole other set of areas that we need to consider, such as grid stability, uh, to name one. So, so I wouldn't necessarily say it's, uh, it's something that affects us greatly. Maybe it affects us when I'm having a conversation with a couple of buddies at the bar and they tell me what you're doing. It's never going to work. But that's fine. That's a very <laughs> good training experience for any entrepreneur to just consider your no and be able to move on. Uh, when it comes to the regulatory environment, whether it's federally or, or, or provincially and where things are being, is, is, is the government providing the right incentives and the right opportunities or paving the road for these types of initiatives? Or do those incentives in your experience tend to lean in certain areas? Again, we're not against electricity. I don't want to say that. Mm-hmm. It's just how the media portrays it as the answer to everything, yeah. which I think your, your stackable solutions, I love. Mm-hmm. the older you get in business, the more you realize there is never one answer to any question. Mm-hmm. There's multiple answers. But when you talk about what we're, you know, behavior gets incentivized, it gets done. What me- gets mm-hmm. measured, get done, but also what gets incentivized. When you mm-hmm. look at the regulatory environment and what we're being forced to measure, report on, and what we're claiming we're going to do by 2030 mm-hmm. or 2050, does that help open the door or do some of those incentives narrow the focus too much in your opinion? So there, there is uh, a great amount of incentives available. We've been a beneficiary of, uh, of a number of incentives on federal and provincial level to help us uh, de-risk and develop the technology. Uh, I do want to see a little more of leveling the playing field. Okay. Uh, where we provide the ability to all types of technology to, to actually receive similar amount of, uh, of, of support. Uh, and to some extent, I'm, I'm okay, even if it is some technologies that are in competition with us. But then let's level the playing field, because when you speak about diversity, we need to look beyond just the certain areas of diversity that we are currently looking at. We need to be, <laughs> we need to be more diverse with our diversity. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> Essentially, yes. There you yes, go. I, yeah. yeah. Well, we tend to be <laughs> narrow focus and we look for like, yeah. well, this is the one answer, the one answer to, or the one incentive to rule them all. Yeah. It, never work, it never works that way. <laughs> and I will say that there is a chance that some of these ideas might not work. Yes. Uh, I'm not a proponent. Let's, let's support every idea, every person that woke up with an idea yesterday. Let's, let's go and do it. it is, at the end of the day, these are our own taxpayers' dollars. Yes, uh, but we need to show that uh, that leadership in supporting something that is even a little bit outside of the of the the, the popular kids on the block. Let me just put it this way. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's, while a, nice, being, that's a nice way to say. Uh, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, while being very considerate that some might not work, and that's okay. <laughs> the most popular kids on the block. Um, <laughs> when you're talking to your target, the the, the audience that understands or. Is what I'm just thinking about the main drivers. Is it still come down to the economics on this? This has to save me money. Yes, it's good because we've made a commitment to our shareholders to do X the X things. We've made a commitment to the public. We've made a commitment at maybe even at, at a larger media level. Mm-hmm. Does it still come down to like you know kind of order of priorities or order of objections or order of you know hurdles mm-hmm. to get across from a sale? I'm assuming cost is pretty close to the top and cost savings. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the other points or how do, how does it fall in your in your experience? Mm-hmm. So our number one objective is to save money to our clients. Okay. This is the number one goal. Uh, we don't even, we're not even that particular on engaging a discussion whether climate change is real or not. We are here to save you money. We do it in a manner that does not release emissions. And this is something that we believe in. 
So, uh, so awesome. the other objective, uh, the number one objective, objective is to save uh, our partners and our clients money. The secondary objective is to give them an evidence-based ESG, um, ESG tracking. Uh, because oh, they okay. have nice. whether whether they believe on climate whether someone believes on climate change or not, it's to some extent becoming irrelevant relevant based on whether your jurisdiction believes in climate change or not yeah, and what are the pressures very, that's, on that's your, a very good point. Uh, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate that concept. So um when uh, when we live uh, when you're in a highly regulatory environment or you have internally have a very strong ESG mandate. We need to start graduating from just writing DSG reports and setting the targets. <laughs> we need to start uh, uh, working on towards reaching these targets. So we have the ability to offer our clients not just uh, not just a solution that saves them money, but a solution that shows uh, a metrics-driven uh, ESG ESG reporting. Uh, we are integrating. So when I was speaking about stackable solutions, that meant stackable solutions for energy generation. But uh, we are har- har- highly hardware-based uh, technology, but we are okay. providing a lot of software. Uh, integration so that software like that might uh, take us another session to speak about the software integration but the one piece that i'm going to point out is that we're integrating uh, a dashboard that provides all the tracking of energy in versus energy out uh in comparison to the to the baseline so in other words we are we are clearly showing how much we are offsetting in terms of emissions so that this can go towards the sg reporting but it's metrics based it's evidence-based and are you seeing a com- the conversation evolve? Just again, your own your own uh, case study of the people that you talk to around. We're starting to get a little more serious about the evidence in the uh, the evidence portion of the ESG reporting. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, this is helpful because people want to see something tangible. We have okay. that, ba- and and my, one of the other benefits that we offer is that we can build very pretty systems. There, that wasn't the objective, uh, but we like <laughs> building beautiful, sexy looking systems. So they can see that it's tangible. It's not, I don't have anything against things. Some wonderful things are buried in a basement, out of sight, out of mind. And they do amazing things to help our lives. But we have the ability to put that as a showpiece of sustainability. So we can show you mm. something tangible that you can see and that you can touch. But we can also show you what that means uh, from that uh, from that metrics evidence-based uh, reporting. So yes, to answer your question directly, this is becoming uh, very tangible and a lot easier for people to wrap their heads around and comprehend of what the benefits of the system are. I appreciate that. Um, you talked about saving money. Obviously, there's investment, there's CapEx, there's all the things. Um, is this, does the customer have to have a five-year mindset, a 10-year mindset, a 30-year mindset? Like, again, most most mm-hmm. large B2B industrial type environments, you're always thinking on a bit of a longer scale. And I certainly mm-hmm. know for friends of mine that have put solar um photovoltaic on their homes it's like oh yeah but they plan to keep that home for 10 or 15 years and they had a bigger mindset just in general in terms of time span Mm -hmm. when you're speaking with a with a potential customer what is that mindset that really lines up well with this type of solution so so yes it's definitely the the long-term vision and the long long long-term thinking and and understanding how you can set yourself up for success with that step change approach so once Mm -hmm. again we are not going to someone and telling them rip out the old equipment and replace it overnight yeah. We're going to do it together. We're going to hold hands and do it together and slowly and gradually increase the the non-emitting uh, uh, capacity of your solution. Uh, so this is definitely the long-term thinking. But at the same time, there are certain uh, certain markets where they can't even afford not to have the short-term thinking. When we're, mm, okay. when we're speaking about cer- certain, let's say, consumer-based products. So I mentioned that one of the markets uh, that, uh, that uh, we play in, it's... Uh, food and uh, beverages production. Okay. So let's just pick an example, canola oil. 
so canola oil requires a lot of heat as part of the processing. And, uh, and there is a lot of pressure from consumers like you and I that we would like to be purchasing sustainable uh, and ESG-minded products. So there is a talk about using highly recyclable plastics or maybe shifting away from plastics, uh, using highly recyclable uh, labels and, uh, and, uh, and purchasing our product from stores that maybe deploy renewable energy within the store. Yep. But there is more and more awareness about the importance of the entire supply chain, that yeah. life cycle impact. So, so you can have a short-term benefit by actually positioning yourself that you're a supplier of a product, let's once again pick an oil that uses renewable heat as part of the manufacturing and the generation of that product. That can immediately set you up for actually accessing new market, increasing sales, and tapping into certain uh, grocery store supply chains that have these very strong mandates. So one of a sudden, you can make your product a lot more attractive uh, and unlock new markets that were previously inaccessible for you uh, as a as a pr- producer of that particular product. Hmm. Have you yeah. had any conversations? I'm I'm harkening back. I recently did an episode with uh, Alex uh, Todorovich from uh, Arbor and uh, talking mm-hmm. about their technology to help actually measure supply chain. And he really talked mm-hmm. about the movement he's seeing in Europe from a consumer perspective or where that consumer wants to look at the label on that shirt or on mm-hmm. that, whatever the case may be, and see what the carbon footprint was and where he's, they're mm-hmm. seeing a lot of uptick in their software because the consumer is demanding it with their, with their dollars. Mm-hmm. And, but more That's so right. in Europe than in, certainly in North America from his perspective. Yes, yes. And I had a chance to travel to Europe twice last year, and it was interesting to see, once again, some of the differences, what yeah. we could learn, what maybe that we can teach. Uh, Sometimes what's well. coming, right? Sometimes we're yes. going to see the yeah. future. <laughs> That's right. So so that aspect of the and, uh, lifestyle impact assessment has been very important for us since day one. We are taking a very close look into the composition of every single material that we use. But that, once again, extends to, the, to some of these products. So yes, it becomes very important, and it becomes important for the for some of the big chains that they yeah. overnight they can implement a mandate that renders 80% of a particular product line no longer eligible. So even if you're a small company that is thinking short term, you can make your product a lot more attractive over, I shouldn't say overnight, but in a fairly short period of time, just because you're being a little more aggressive with, uh, with uh, and proactive with implementing these steps. Mm, I appreciate that. What would be a timeline on, you know, we're talking short term, long term, kind of arbitrarily. Um, what would be a step one? And I appreciate that the, we're, we're on the journey together. We're holding hands as, you, as you've almost visualized on my video. Um, what, what is the step one? Is that a six month implementation? I know that this is a how long is a piece of string question, but for typically somebody to start seeing some positive impact and being able to go, whoa, this is actually working. What is short term versus long term? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, so so it very much depends on the on the size of the of the facility, like the volume that they need. Yeah. Uh, we do have the ability to deploy a, a demonstration facility fairly quick, anywhere between three to six months, which would be a fairly small facility. Okay. It can demonstrate how the system works and and what are the impacts. In the grand scheme of things, it might be a small percentage, but it's uh, it's an opportunity to demonstrate and validate what the operation looks like. And the modularity of our system allows us to very quickly increase the capacity over time. Mm. So we can do phase one deployment as a smaller scale, smaller scale system just to demonstrate to the client how it operates and what it means. Then we can quickly go to scale two, which would be a larger system. And it's, uh, at phase three, we can, we can really aim to, to help the clients reach out their 2030 targets. Okay. Okay. And I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's dangerous when you show around, throw around terms like short term and long term, because it really kind of means nothing <laughs> without context, yeah. right? Um, when you think about the equipment, the hardware, and like, well, I, you've already warned me. If we go down the software road, we'll be here for another two days talking about it. When you think about the hardware, obviously, 
there's lots of instances and there's media certainly out there where, oh my God, this solar farm that now no longer is viable and now it's just sitting there and we've got all this <laughs> gear that's been put in a field. And again, my, my, fa- my father lives in Southern Ontario and you can drive around where a lot of good farmland <laughs> was converted to solar. And now they're slowly being abandoned because of the cost for uptake. And so from how much does that play into a factor with your decision-making as you built this solution? <laughs> if, yeah, we, we don't want to build a solution that can't support its own weight almost, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. So this is where, once again, that life cycle impact becomes very critical. Mm. And we took even the deployment of our uh, the pilot that we're operating right now very serious. We, we spent over uh, eight months developing uh, a very detailed view of materials and decision-making matrix or, or where the products that we're procuring coming mm. from. Okay. Because we want to understand the supply chain. We want to push the boundaries of the supply chain. So that, that's the one aspect that allows us to look into materials that are highly recyclable and highly reusable. Okay. And, and once again, the systems that we built are, are very modular. In the event that we even deploy with a client that, uh, that it's more in the resource-based client that has a particular facility that maybe has a uh, 5 or 10 or 15-year lifespan and our system has a 25-year lifespan, okay. we have the ability to deploy it uh, at a particular location for a certain period of time and then we can relocate that system. Or even oh, okay. if that system reaches end of life, Everything is very modular. Certain components can be easily replaced. Certain components can be salvaged. Other components can be uh, recycled. You, you start. You started with the end in mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've seen a lot of what's happening with this. To your point, with the PV system, with the wind turbines. So I think that will open up another huge market for what we do with these end of life products. But uh, I'm I've always been very fascinated with a new life of old products. How I, can I, you I, that's a really them? that's a really nice yeah. way to say it. <laughs> yeah. New, 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 new life, the rebirth, the genesis of, 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 of the, re- the yeah, the, the cradle to cradle. And Tyler, maybe just one last point that I would make here is that in comparison to some of the other solar technologies out there, we don't use rare earth materials to the same extent that they do. Okay. There is a lot less. We, we get that question a lot. How do your PV panels work? How do they generate electricity? Like once again, we have to speak <laughs> is that there, there is a, it's actually a very simple technology. There is a lot of novelty with the components that we use in the integration, but at the core of it, it's a very simple reflective technology that, that doesn't require that amount of rare materials as other systems do. I'm already hearing in your voice, uh, there's a lot of re-education around, we're not generating electricity. We're not generating electricity. <laughs> well, <we're, laughs> I heard you carrying, say it a couple of times, yeah. even in your, in your, in your, in your words. <laughs> we're carrying the torch. Yes. Yes, I do. I do, I do appreciate that. And as a consumers, investors, we jump to what we think we understand because it's comfortable for us. And we know that re-education and going, oh, so you mean you're not generating electricity? Yes. For the 80th time, that's hundred percent correct. What's happening. Yeah. And I do appreciate it. That's why even I love to do these shows. I'm like, and I've had the privilege have been even appeal tell people all oh, my house is heated with solar like oh you have you make electricity i'm like no i make heat they're like what and immediately there's a blank stare and i yeah. and i only learned it because i bought a house that had it already i wouldn't have put it on but i wouldn't have done it differently now if that makes sense I, it's That's fantastic great. yeah it's fantastic technology and it was 08 and i basically had almost zero maintenance i had a tank breach a failure due to due to rust but that's because mm-hmm. the person before didn't put the rust treatment in. Other than that, it has been a zero maintenance system mm-hmm. and it's now, you know, pushing 15 years old. So yeah, you that's a great example for me of a winning solution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We Maybe we should have you do an independent endorsement of not just our technology. <laughs> the, just concept, the, the concept, the concept. I would, I would general, love to. Yes. I'm sold on it. I, I rave about yes. it. People talk to me about their yeah. utility bills. I'm like, yeah. well, let me tell you about my utility bills. So yeah, I definitely yeah. like to brag about it whenever I, get, whenever I get a chance. That's great. I was just lucky enough to inherit it. I wasn't smart enough to yeah. have chose it in the first place. <laughs> um, 
biggest challenge going forward for you, maybe, or even going forward for the industry a little bit, always, I can't help. I so, I so love working with businesses and business owners and understanding their challenges, but with the bigger conversation of what this is about today of like where this all fits into the sustainability journey, you know, how are we benefiting today without robbing from tomorrow while also understanding now, like you said, ESG, whether you believe in it or not, the, the kind of the horse is out of the barn on that one. Like you're going to be held accountable to it. So that conversation is moot. So your, your organization where your challenges, but how that all kind of lays in against this bigger concept that now you just, it can't be ignored. I think a, a challenge that I foresee is that if we do a good job in storytelling and education and explaining the importance, we might find ourselves, find ourselves in a position where we're like, okay, maybe we still don't quite get how the technology works, like for you as a company, do we need this solution overnight? Okay. So we're we're taking a very close look into rapid scalability, like speed to market and scalability. Yep. So that's a very high focus on uh, something that we work on. It's what we call design for manufacturing, shipping, and assembly, DFMSA. It's a mouthful of an acronym. But the reason why we're taking a closer look into this is because we want to develop a system with all the limiting factors of the of the deployment process in mind, from the manufacturing line to how we put it in a container to what might be some of the regulatory parameters that we need to fit in. So, so the reason why we take such a close look at this is because we don't want to learn just how to build a couple of systems in a, in a span of a year. Yeah. We want to gradually learn how we can produce them at a very large scale because we expect that there will be that awakening. It's happening. We see it in Europe. We see it in the US. We see it in Canada. That one of a sudden is like, we, like we're running out of time. Like we have these 2030 and 2050 targets yeah, yeah, yeah. and we're yeah. running out of time. And it was hmm. like, it was great to see all these companies working on that. But now it's a question how quickly can you get us these systems? To quote an Alberta phrase that I learned when I moved here, sooner or later, you got to get shit done, as, as I learned very quickly yeah, in this yeah. province. <laughs> it's, sorry, D, yeah. D-F-M-S-A. What's the, I, I love a good acronym, but that's a big one. That's a five-letter one. That's, yeah. a, that's a substantial one. So we are actually, the, the, the general acronym is D-F-M-A, Design for Manufacturing. Okay, uh, okay. yeah, that makes sense. And uh, uh, Manufacturing and Assembly. Uh, we're introducing D-S, which is shipping. So we're calling it D-F-M-S-A. Designed for manufacturing, shipping, and assembly. Because we want to be very considerate, once again, of what are the limiting factors from a shipping perspective. Because we want to, if you're in a site somewhere in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, or in any part of the world, we want to be able to have a very standardized manufacturing process and a process where we can fit full pre-assembled uh, modules, as many full pre-assembled modules in a can as we can. So that when they show up on site, they're very easy to assemble and deploy. Some of these large systems can take up to two to three to four years to deploy. We want to shorten that uh, life cycle. We want to mm-hmm. be able to get you a system that it's easy to deploy. It's modular. Once again, you don't have to go to the 100 megawatt facility right off the bat. You can start small. And while the smaller system it's producing, we will continue to increase the capacity of the bigger system. When I love it from a pure marketing and consumer perspective, you're making it easier to buy. You're making it easier to get up and running and make it easy. Yeah. You're, you're, finding, you're, you're building the reduction of friction into your business model. That it, that actually becomes one of the superpowers of your business model. <laughs> it is all client yeah, driven. I love it. So this is this is the importance of customer discovery and listening uh, to to what's important. And uh, yes, even with some like we we operate uh, under two different business models, so that we can suit the client's needs, whether it is their capital or the operational budgets. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's all client driven. It's what makes the most sense for the client. And we are designing a system where we have that ability to 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 pair it to what makes the most sense to the client. 
I love it. Start with start, don't fall in love with the problem. Fall in love with your client's version of the problem, which is I'm hearing loud That's and clear right. from you. I yeah. love it. Russell, that so much, such a great conversation. I love your passion. And certainly what I really appreciate is the depth of thought and how deliberate to me from the outside, it certainly sounds you've not only put into the solution, but the how and like the, the why almost seems easy. It's the how and the what that you're really leaning in on. And I, I really, really appreciate that, which I think um, will be bold and say it's what it's what separates the successful from the cool ideas. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Highly so. What's hey and uh, uh, what's the best way for people? Uh, SolarSteam.ca. I'm on your website right now, taking a look. They are sexy, and as a marketer, I think that is valuable. I don't want <laughs> to overlook you. that. I don't yeah. want to overlook it because uh, it, it's it, is it newsworthy? And in this case, it is. What are the what are your best ways if someone wants to reach out? They either want to have a conversation, get to know mm-hmm. what what's what's the best channel yeah. to get a hold of you. Mm. So uh, SolarSteam.ca. Uh, that's our website. We have a uh, uh, client uh, client center, investor center, and tech center. We just uh, which are the couple of avenues so, uh, that you can reach out to us through. Nice. Follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, we are also on Instagram and on Facebook. But we are the most active on LinkedIn, and we constantly uh, post uh, updates on how the development of the company is going. What are our needs? What we might be looking for support. And every time there is a job opening, LinkedIn is the uh, the platform that oh, we use fantastic. to advertise that. I, I, I love it. Postal, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was absolutely, I learned a ton. And uh, also just really selfishly, I enjoyed the conversation. So thank you for that. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Tyler. It was a pleasure. Thank you.